welcome everybody to the latest episode of Media Sandwich, a podcast. A podcast. That's what it is. It's a podcast. I don't have to explain it to you. <laughs> I might. This might be your first. Every podcast is somebody's first podcast. To paraphrase Stan Lee uh, when he was talking about comic books. But uh, this is a podcast where uh, I skim the headlines of the entertainment news, the media news, the movies, the video games, the TV, the comic book news. I, I skim the headlines, I read the articles, and I give you my perspective on all of them. But who am I? Just a guy. Just a guy. Uh, j- just a guy named Kyle Martinak. That's my name. That's who I am. And this is uh, the podcast where we talk about... Oh boy, how how large corporations that give us our entertainment, that make us feel better about ourselves during our free time away from our jobs, those corporations, uh, they're, <laughs> they suck. Sometimes they suck at their jobs even. Uh, let's, let's start that out right now with the video game news. And I only have one thing I wanted to talk about in the video game news. It was a big weekend, of course. It was a big week this last week for video games. We had Pokemon uh, Scarlet and Violet came out. Uh, 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 Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 dropped and was a really, really, really big seller, as it always is. And uh, the biggest piece of news, though, that I wasn't aware of i just kind of got caught up on it and i wanted to talk about it because it's so bananas is uh (laughs) the microsoft v sony dawn of market dominance that's going on uh if you haven't been following along with the story like i wasn't microsoft is trying to buy activision blizzard king for like 70 billion dollars that's so much money think about that for a second disney bought marvel Disney bought Lucasfilm, and those were, those were like four billion dollar purchases. This is a seventy seven zero billion dollar purchase, and I mean that number makes sense when you think about all the things that fall under Activision Blizzard King. It's a very gigantic video game publisher, possibly the biggest one in the game right now, and. Yeah, Sony is trying to block that purchase because, well, because it sounds like something approaching a monopoly when one of the biggest console manufacturers in the industry owns a gigantic monolithic game publishing company that owns a whole bunch of smaller companies, including game developers. You can see how they would not want that. It's, I mean, hey, it's not great from my perspective as the consumer, that's for sure. And Sony doesn't like it as the potential competition to such an unholy union. So I agree with Sony on something. That's pretty weird. Uh, anyway, the UK's uh, Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, uh, government outlet, has been investigating this purchase. And both companies, both Microsoft and Sony, have been just... just absolutely showing their asses with the statements that they're giving to the CMA for this investigation. It's in, it's so insane. For starters, just a couple days ago, Microsoft up and made a declaration that Sony's exclusive releases are just plain better than theirs. Which, hey, I mean, fans have been saying that for like two decades, right? 
but it's shocking to hear Microsoft say out loud, let alone file it in paperwork with a government watchdog, that The Last of Us, uh, Ghosts of Tsushima, God of War, the Spider-Man games, those are just better quality and better selling titles than their exclusive titles, which are like, you know, Halo and Gears of War, I guess. I, I know one of those came out a while ago. I Honestly, I'm having trouble naming Microsoft exclusives right out the gate other than those two. Um, but yeah, Microsoft went so far as to say that even if they did acquire Activision Blizzard, and even if they did make Call of Duty an exclusive Xbox title, and that seems to be the real... That seems to be the real sticking point for Sony is, hey, they can't own Call of Duty outright because they'll make it an exclusive title for themselves. And no, don't 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 you dare let them do that. Uh, but Microsoft said even if they acquired Activision Blizzard, even if they made Call of Duty an exclusive Xbox title, which they were quick to point out, they have no plans to do so. They would make it available to PlayStation. They'd be kind of stupid not to because they'd be hacking away half of their regular co consumer base for that franchise. Obviously, I think it's pretty obvious to me they wouldn't want to do that. But even if they were to make it an exclusive Xbox title, uh, it would not balance the spreadsheet on exclusive titles. Because Sony has so many going for them that are better sellers and are just better quality games. They said that on paper, and that's such a weird argument to make. Like, our competition's games are so much better than ours that even if we had an unfair advantage, it wouldn't... It wouldn't be unfair. Um, <laughs> and by the way, there is at least one franchise that is at play uh, for being an exclusive Xbox title if this purchase went through, and that's Elder Scrolls. That's, like, the one that Microsoft's like, yeah, that one we would make exclusive to us. So... You know, I mean, hey, I liked Skyrim. I liked Skyrim enough to to buy the uh, HD upgrade of it, and that was that was worth the money. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. Elder Scrolls isn't a big franchise for me, but I liked Skyrim. Uh, I liked some of the older Elder Scrolls. I liked Morrowind. That was a good one. Uh, yeah, that'd be a great feather in their cap to have that as an exclusive, not to the same degree that Call of Duty would, business-wise, but, yeah. Um, yeah, their whole argument is that it would not balance the spreadsheet on exclusive titles, and Sony, not to be outdone by their competition, countered with an equally backhanded, weird argument only a couple days later. Sony... In this statement, they throw EA under the bus something fierce. Uh, it's really stunning. They start by basically stating that, hey, listen, Call of Duty is an unstoppable juggernaut. It's been the best-selling game every year for like a decade. And any attempts to rival it on its own, you know, ground have always come up short. There is no other first-person shooter, like, warfare simulator thingy. There isn't one that rivals it. And... Let me just read this next bit verbatim from their statement, though, where EA takes a brick right in the mouth. Uh, quote, To give a concrete example, Electronic Arts, one of the largest third-party developers after Activision, has tried for many years to produce a rival to Call of Duty with its Battlefield series. Despite the similarities between Call of Duty and Battlefield, 
And despite EA's track record in developing other successful AAA franchise, such as FIFA, Mass Effect, Need for Speed, and Star Wars Battlefront, the Battlefront, uh, the Battlefield franchise cannot keep up. End quote. Wow. I mean, number one, taking your business partner and hucking them under a bus that hard. Whew. Uh, that doesn't look great. But also, does this strike anyone else as two giant tech conglomerates with all the money in the world trying to out-victim each other? How disgusting. Uh, right? Like, you got one like, hey, look, they got us beat when it comes to exclusive titles. Even if we had an unfair advantage, it wouldn't be unfair. It wouldn't balance it out because, because they've just got us in that regard. And the other one going, hey, hey, look, we make a ton of games that do really well, but not any of them do nearly as well as this one that they would have controlling rights over. And here I am, the consumer, like, hey, you know what a great way to get more people to buy your games would be? Make your console less than my car payment, assholes. Uh, stop trying to charge me anywhere from $500 to $800 for your frickin' machine. Why do you think I bought a Nintendo Switch? Because it's under the amount I pay for my car every month. It's under the amount I pay for the electricity and the internet to power said device every month. Um, and that's just the, the reality. That's the way of it. But yeah, wow. All of it. Uh, all of this to buy Activision Blizzard, who, by the way, uh, in related news, related in as much as that it's about Activision, uh, they were reported... This weekend, yeah, this weekend, yes, because of Modern Warfare, they enjoyed this just titanic $800 million in sales over the weekend due to Black Friday and all of that stuff. And meanwhile, they strong-armed a labor union for Raven Software's uh, QA testing team. This union was told by the biggest publisher in the industry that they would not be paid for on-the-clock negotiations. They had a bargaining session during work hours for stuff like continued guaranteed remote work, uh, guaranteed work hours, prevention against Activision outsourcing labor, you know, really like meat and potatoes stuff for a union negotiation. And Activision's like, well, well, the union is going to have to pay out of pocket for those hours on the clock. What a bunch of fuckers. Like, the rich just get richer from every angle here. Microsoft, Sony, Activision. Ugh, it just makes me all want to puke in my soup. So you know what? We're going to change the subject. That's it for video games. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, if you bought Modern Warfare 2 and you enjoyed it, awesome. If you bought Pokemon this last weekend and enjoyed it, awesome. If you didn't like those, uh, let me know. I've heard mixed things. Uh, Chris and I had a discussion on Friday, on Black Friday, we were tootling around in the car and we went to Walmart to look around at sales. There was nothing left because it was Friday night. And uh, we were talking about uh, Pokemon and he said that it was performing just fine for him. And he hadn't heard anything about the uh, rampant issues that people have been having. But I don't know, to each their own. Everybody's, uh, everybody's experience is different based on uh, their hardware or something. I don't know. But at any rate... Let's shift gears into movies. Um, speaking of the rich getting richer, hey, hey, Disney won the holiday weekend at the box office uh, for Thanksgiving weekend, but not with their new release. 
Uh, Disney had a new release, the animated movie Strange World. If you haven't heard of it, that's not really surprising. The marketing for it has been scant, as it were. No, uh, Disney won the weekend with Black Panther Wakanda Forever again. Uh, it snagged another $63 million over the five-day weekend in America after already being two weeks old. Woo! That's, that's a lot of money. And uh, unfortunately, Strange World only picked up about $24 million. Yeesh. Against a $180 million budget, mind you. That seems like, it seems like animated movies' budgets have gotten a little out of control, at least over at Disney. Uh, for a comparison, last year's Thanksgiving weekend, Disney released Encanto, which hit $40 million for the five-day, off a, a similar budget, probably more like a $150 million budget, uh... But that movie also had legs like you read about. I mean, it ended up hitting $256 million domestic, uh, and way, way more even worldwide. Strange World, not projected to do that kind of sustained business. Not with entire families coming back for a second go at it kind of business that Encanto did. So, just off of what I noticed as an advertising geek and as a father in a very Disney-consuming household... Yeah, I mean, the fault on this is the marketing push for this movie was not great. It started, like, only a week before the movie came out. I didn't really notice a whole lot of aggressive marketing for it. There's no, like, toy line. It's not it's not toyetic, as Joel Schumacher would have said, or rather the studio said to him back in the 90s about Batman. And And the marketing for Strange World has just been pretty lackadaisical. I don't know who the characters are. I don't know exactly what got them to this strange world or what it is. It could be a fantastic voyage situation, for all I know, where they're inside a living organism and shrunk down, or they could be in another dimension or on a different planet. As far as the ads have told me, uh, it could be any of those things or all of those things. The ads should have been given a better hook than their family, and their explorers, and look at all this pretty. And it does look pretty, it looks gorgeous, but that gorgeous animation isn't enough to get people off their duffs and into the theater anymore. I mean, geez, these days, not much is able to get people off their duffs and into a movie theater other than cape shit, as people call it on film Twitter, cape shit. I mean, they did have the trailer for this movie in front of all the correct movies over the summer, uh, Lightyear, The Minions, I think they might have even put it in front of Jurassic World for my screening at least. So they pushed the movie, but it was really a, this is coming soonish, and it's something. I mean, the trailer didn't really register with the kids at all. I asked them, are you, you know, you interested in that one? And they're like, oh, I forgot about that one already. You know, it, it might just be a case of this movie is really difficult to give an elevator pitch for, I mean, look, admittedly, it's not a musical, it, it doesn't have a toy line built into it, it doesn't showcase a particular culture the way Encanto did, or the way Coco did, uh, it doesn't contain any already beloved characters. It's not prepackaged for success, the way Disney likes it, you know, the way they really like to push a movie. Now keep in mind, Lightyear was prepackaged for success, more so than Strange World especially, it contained an already beloved character, it starred a recognizable actor as that character, it had a toy line, 
actually a pretty decent toy line if you've if you peruse the toy aisles. The Lightyear toys kind of better than the movie itself. Um, <laughs> and and also it takes place in a similar kind of vague sci-fi futuristic setting. So yeah, like those are comparable movies. And that one released in the dead of summer opened with fifty one million. Now keep in mind, dead of summer. That's a big factor. And also Lightyear, even though it opened with 51 million, it was also kind of a flop because it cost like $200 million and it had no legs at all. After that first weekend, it dropped bad word of mouth on Lightyear. uh, And not to mention the quick transition to Disney plus made it an easy skip for a lot of folks. It's, it's weird to say that an animated movie that made $265 million, uh, domestic was a flop, but it was with Lightyear because of that insane budget. And Strange World, I think any armchair commentator like myself can say Strange World was not destined for big numbers because it doesn't have that prepackaged success that Lightyear even had. And, and it's made for a similar budget. Uh, this was going to be a modest hit at best, and without a substantial marketing uh, push, it just kind of died on the vine. I mean, this movie, you could almost see it from a distance. From, like, October, it was like, oh, that one's coming soon. Uh, that one's just going to come and go, and no one's going to even notice, huh? That's what's going to happen here, especially with Wakanda Forever dominating. Black Adam may or may not have legs. I mean, it, it had a couple of weeks of business, and fell off the edge of the earth once Black Panther came. And then, you know, from there, the rest of the box office is kind of indie award season stuff. Now, uh, this news dovetails with the other big thing happening at Disney in the last week. I think it happened uh, last week and I missed it on the pod. It happened like right before I recorded. But uh, Bob Iger has returned as Disney CEO after less than a year after his retirement. And Bob Chapek... Is it Chapik or Chapik? Again, really bad with names. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says I'm really bad with names. Uh, it's my new <laughs> it's my new catchphrase on the podcast. I'm really bad with names. But uh, one Bob for another. One Bob stepped out of the job and the other is returning to the job. Uh, Bob Chapik or Chapik, whichever. Uh, he took over the role as CEO in 2020 and uh, since 2020, Disney has had an interesting amount of unforced errors under his tenure. Uh, chief among them was obviously some folks called an obsession with Disney+. Plus. I mean, it was pandemic days and also the first 18 months of the streaming service's life at the same time. So things were weird. It was an odd landscape. But his number one priority was increasing subscription numbers on that streaming service to the detriment of a lot of unnecessarily bad PR and bad business decisions. I mean, we all kind of balked at the idea of, hey, what, Pixar movies just don't rate the theatrical experience anymore, Bob? You're just tossing them directly to Disney+. Plus. Uh, Suddenly, Star Wars is not a movie franchise anymore. Now it's a television franchise. That's my gripe more than anybody's. But stuff like that, like uh, the, the, the very quick turnaround on dropping stuff onto Disney Plus after a theatrical exhibition. I mean, not for nothing. If you remember, he put Black Widow on Disney Plus 
stirred up a lot of uh, problems with Scarlett Johansson when that happened, because it cost her tens of millions of dollars, possibly, because she had gross points from the box office of that movie, and it was supposed to be her parting gift from playing the role. Like, this movie's going to open, it's going to be like $200 million, you have 5% of that, that's a shit ton of money, roughly. Um, <laughs> that's about $10 million, actually. I don't know if that's exactly the percentage she had. I'm just making up numbers, but she had gross points from the box office of that movie. It was supposed to be a big payday for her, and instead they dumped it to streaming where she gets none of the box office money from the views on Disney+, and they had to make it right with her very publicly. And then there was Florida's uh, Don't Say Gay bill, which Disney, it turned out, kind of contributed to in the form of donations to several campaigns of the bill's supporters. That looked really bad. And, uh, oh boy, here's one that didn't make as much news as that, but Disney also decided to move their headquarters from L.A. to Florida because, yeah, no, I get it. Real estate is cheaper in Florida than California. Property taxes and the like, it makes sense on paper until you tell everybody working for you that they have to move to the state with the don't say gay bill and a general anti-vaccine sentiment, among other charming aspects. Uh, I'm sorry to bash on Florida if you happen to be Floridian. I'm sorry it's not personal, but holy crap, that state. Holy crap, that state. And uh, not to mention there are a large percentage of progressive showbiz people anchored in L.A. working for Disney being told that. Some of them might not feel all that welcome in America's penis. I'm just saying. Uh, finally, the most prominent of Disney's oopsies the last couple of years, the price gouging at the theme parks has made headline news. Now, I'm not a big Disneyland goer. I've been there a total of once, and it was nearly 20 years ago. And inflation is a thing all over the country at the moment in every single place of commerce we have. I get that. Uh... It has been for like a year and change now. Inflation has been an issue. But at Disney parks, they've taken special steps to make sure that every trip trip there for every American would become unnecessarily expensive, including eliminating the free fast pass system, replacing it with a paid uh, lightning lane system, I think they call it, eliminating the dining plans and the annual passes, increasing concession prices by noticeable levels, it's been, it, it's, it's measurable how much more expensive it is to go to one of those parks now. And under, under the former Bob, uh, Bob C, under, under Bob C, Disney started feeling a lot like Waystar Royco from the show Succession, in my opinion. It started sounding like, kind of like the dumbass leading the blind. Uh, but there are several arms of this company making very visible dumb choices the last couple of years. Uh, all at the same time, that's the real problem, is that you can make one of these errors, but not all of these errors over two years. And Strange World, it seems like, has kind of become this decade's Treasure Planet or Atlantis the Lost Empire. It's a movie they sunk a shit ton of money into and did not advertise it properly, did not really try to advertise it. It was just kind of like, well, this movie's a write-off. Right away, they just decide, well, this movie's a write-off, it's not going to make us money, it's one that we're putting out, you know, uh, it's one that we're putting out hoping we might get a nomination for Best Animated Feature, and that's about it, right? 
I mean, if you if you're too young to remember, or if you just plain don't remember, uh, Treasure Planet was also released on Thanksgiving weekend in 2002, 20 years ago now, almost exactly, against a James Bond movie and a Harry Potter movie, as well as another Disney, uh, uh, another Disney juggernaut, Santa Claus 2. So, uh, meanwhile, Atlantis the Lost Empire had to go up against Shrek and Lara Croft Tomb Raider in June of 2001. And isn't it ridiculous that you probably saw more advertising for Lara Croft Tomb Raider than you did for Atlantis the Lost Empire, considering June of 2001? And then, of course, Shrek was an unstoppable beast of a movie at the time at the box office. But in both cases... You have this stunning animation, both beautiful, gorgeous movies, but a plot and a set of characters that are not terribly marketable to kids. The competition at the box office is really stiff. And Strange World has this added handicap, thanks to thanks to Bob C., of most families being able to say, eh, that's fine. It, it looks like it'll it looks like the kind of movie that's gonna be on Disney Plus by Christmas Eve, so we'll watch it on Christmas Eve instead of spending fifty to a hundred dollars for the whole family to go see it on the big screen. What can I say? Not great, Bob. <laughs> it finally applies here. Not great, Bob. Uh <laughs> Anyway, similarly not fantastic at the box office this last holiday week. Um, hey, uh, friendo who's listening, did you see The Glass Onion? Odds are you did not, uh, because Netflix decided to only release the sequel to Knives Out on 700 screens in North America just for one week over the long weekend, making its theatrical release, surprise, surprise, a complete afterthought. Uh... That and and they didn't pretend otherwise either. I think initially they were gonna just re- they weren't gonna release it theatrically at all, apart from Netflix's dopey little trick of doing like three screens in L.A. for like a week or two in order to qualify for award season. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, uh, with this limited release, the movie made probably somewhere between twelve and thirteen million. I say probably because Netflix. Famously, they don't give out their view numbers for their streaming content, or they don't also they also do not give out their box office totals for th- uh, theatrical distributions either. But that's an estimate from uh, from box office folks. Uh, now, meanwhile, Steven Spielberg's new movie, The Fablemans, which I haven't seen yet, I really really want to see that, but it's equally difficult to find showing anywhere around me. Uh, it's important to note that one also got buried to only 638 screens released. Uh, that one only made like 3 million over the five day. 3 million for The Fablemans versus 13 for The Glass Onion in roughly the same amount of showings. And the first Knives Out movie, when it released, yes, again, no joke, on Thanksgiving weekend in 2019... It was a huge, unexpected hit. $41 million for the five-day. But that was released on 3,400 screens. So yeah, box office analysts, the, the people making those estimates, they're saying the sequel probably could have done 40 to $50 million over the holiday weekend if given an actual wide release. Which means it probably would have hit over $100 million domestic in its entire theatrical run. 
versus the 13 million that it made for the week it was released. <laughs> I mean, the first movie did 164 million domestic, over 300 million worldwide, by the way. That was Knives Out in 2019. Netflix, I cannot emphasize this part of the story enough, Netflix lost out on tens of millions of dollars, probably over a hundred million dollars worth of box office receipts for this movie after paying $469 million for the rights to Ryan Johnson's series. Uh, specifically, the second and third movies in the Knives Out franchise are Netflix exclusive distributions from a hundred from that four hundred and sixty nine million, and they have already lost money on it because of this bonehead decision to release it this way. Talk about unforced errors! Good grief! That's so much lost money for them. Anyway, if by, if by chance you didn't catch the one showing of Glass Onion in your area on any of the days in between Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, and today, um, <laughs> gee, how could you miss it? Um, if you did miss it, you can watch it on Netflix on December 23rd when it releases to the streamer. What a damn shame. Seriously, what a damn shame. It's really... It sucks that so many movies this year that deserved a theatrical release are being shunted directly to streaming, and even some of the movies that get a wide release in cinemas are done so this begrudgingly to the point where they are leaving money on the table almost on purpose. Uh, the shifts that have to be made to save the movie industry during the pandemic, shifting to streaming as the primary distribution source, there was no exit strategy, clearly. This is proof. There was no exit strategy to making those shifts, and now we're seeing the consequences. And that's why the movie industry is not doing as well as it was in 2019. Uh, apart from Tom Cruise being a belligerent, crazy person and saying, we have to save the movies! Um, yeah. Yeah. But hey, look, uh, in other news of embarrassing displays from famous production companies or distribution companies, hoofa doofa, did you see the new DreamWorks fanfare? <laughs> uh, DreamWorks has Puss in Boots The Last Wish coming out December 21st. A th the third Puss in Boots movie, I think? Boy. Uh, okay. <laughs> um... Uh, and to celebrate that movie coming out, well, uh, DreamWorks have noodled around and made one of those really extended studio vanity card video thingies. You know what I mean. It's exactly like the Marvel Studios logos where they stopped using the comic book pages flipping and they started using moments from the MCU movies instead. And then it got longer and longer and longer and you just want the damn movie to start, you don't need to watch all 25 movies that came before it, uh, DreamWorks did that. They did one for themselves. So it starts with the little kid fishing off the crescent moon, the classic DreamWorks logo, and, and that's such a great logo. And suddenly you're zooming in a car with the bad guys. Remember the bad guys from this last year? You're zooming around in a car with them, and then the boss baby is there winking at you, his creepy little bald head. Uh, Kung Fu Panda shows up, the How to Train Your Dragon crew, 
And of course, it ends on Shrek himself, the patron saint of DreamWorks animation. Everyone's there for 38 seconds. That doesn't sound like a long time, but in studio logo context, 38 seconds, that's an eternity. That's so up your own ass. And what's more is the sentiment behind it, you know? This idea of, look at all this, look at all these IPs, look at all of our licensed properties floating around. We did all of these. Aren't you proud of us? It's kind of gross. I, I miss the clamshell VHS days where the studio logo was just like a flat image or a 2D animation. Maybe the studio name would be animated to appear in some dynamic way, like it would zoom into frame or it would be written like a signature. They did that a lot with Disney. Uh, and then, you know, a simple image like that, the most elaborate being like Bugs Bunny coming out for Warner Brothers and taking a bite of his carrot and just a killer, recognizable, distinguished music cue, you know? Like, you can hear the Warner Brothers one in your head. You can hear Universal's. You can hear the Disney Castle tune. But there's, there's a fanfare arms race happening right now, folks. It's like the chicken sandwich wars between the fast food places. No matter who wins, it hurts my bowels. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. I apologize for that statement. One last movie-adjacent item. If you've been listening to the show the last few weeks, you know that I started venturing into the poison jungles of Tumblr. We're all looking for a lifeboat if Twitter decides to hit the iceberg and collapse, which it still could any day now. We don't know what's going on over there. Elon Musk doesn't know what's going on over there. And what's going on over there is Elon Musk, so... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Uh, really, Twitter doesn't look like it's going out with a bang, though, so much as, like, a sustained groan. You know, uh, everybody assumed there, like, uh, a week or two ago, this is it, tonight's the night, it's the last days of Twitter. Like, everybody had a real apocalypse feeling, and I'm sorry to say, it's just like the real world. We're not gonna go out in a big, bright expanse of, of uh, fire and light. We're just going to slowly die off, and Twitter's just going to slowly die off, too. My timeline right now is looking pretty desolate. I think we're all, we're all weaning a little bit off of the teat of Twitter, as it were. Um, check me out on Hive, though, by the way. Have you seen Hive? Hive is interesting from an outside perspective. I feel so bad for the reportedly uh, two people running that site. They woke up one day to a million new users Holy crap, what a, what a shock to the system that must have been. But honestly, Hive is actually really cool in theory. It has some fun millennial-friendly amenities, like being able to put music on your profile, like back in the MySpace days, that's fun. Uh, doesn't work for the Android version that I'm using quite yet, that sucks, but what can you do? There's two people running it. Uh, I like that Hive has no character limit. So you could word vomit a full blog post if you felt the need. Uh, the photo mechanics of the app are pretty good. So far, there doesn't seem to be a ton of people on it. I mean, one million users, okay. But one million users, how many of them are real users? Uh, I'm getting followed by lots of auto-follow accounts. You know, like, I, ch I it's like, this person is following you. And you look at it and it's like, oh, they have 4.5 thousand followers and 6.9 thousand people they're following. Hmm. 
well, that's not a real person then. That's that's a marketing account, and I don't, I'm not going to refollow those. I don't care how desperate I am for content. Uh, anyway, though, more than anything, the Android version of Hive really, really slow. Really slow. It's not great for your arteries to open an app and look at a blank screen for over 30 seconds before you actually get to anything on it. But again, two people running it. I kind of like poking my big snout around in a bunch of these other social media apps like this. It's been kind of fun the last couple of weeks. It gives me the buzz of shopping without spending money. You know, I'm shopping around for my next time waster. But anyway, I got into Tumblr. That was one of the ones that I poked around in. And I was witness to my first Tumblr in-joke. And Tumblr is famous for their in-jokes. Um... This one, if you haven't heard about it, it's this whole bit about Martin Scorsese's underappreciated 1973 movie, Goncharov. Uh, A a, uh, very underseen, very underspoken uh, mob movie that doesn't exist. Uh, Tumblr made up a fake Martin Scorsese mobster movie that does not exist. And people made posters, they photoshopped behind-the-scenes photos, which look fairly believable as vintage 1973 snaps, like with De Niro and Pacino and everybody in it, uh, photos of them back in that era. It was actually really fun, it was a fun little gag, and, and hey, this is the news, the man himself has acknowledged it. Just over this last weekend, Scorsese, the bane of Marvel stands everywhere, Martin Scorsese, was asked about Goncharov by his daughter Francesca, and he piped up and said, yes, I made that film years ago. (laughs) And it's on her uh, TikTok. So uh, that's really cute. I think it's so much fun that he decided to join in on the joke. So just so you understand the layers here, film Twitter gets bent out of shape every six months or so because Martin Scorsese talks dismissively about those superhero movies that everybody likes. Tumblr collectively faked the existence of a Scorsese picture and filled the internet with its digital footprint, and Scorsese and his daughter participated by talking about the imaginary movie on TikTok. And right now, I feel like a Martian trying to explain quantum physics to a chimpanzee. That's how weird this conversation has got. But at least, hey, the the plus here, the win... Outside of Elon Musk, there are now other people who are having fun on social media in a creative and sassy way that I can really appreciate. Uh, it's cute. It's fun. I think that it's a it's a joke that a lot of film Twitter... Film Twitter is one of those things that I both love and hate. Like, I love following it and following the ebbs and flows of the conversations that dominate the day or the week on film Twitter... But a lot of the voices have become really repugnant to me because a lot of them, like, it's just what they do all day is tweet about whatever the latest, uh, the latest movie discourse is. And it's gotten kind of gross. And this, but th- this, uh, this Tumblr gag, this Tumblr joke uh, movie discourse was to me a breath of fresh air by comparison, I think. Um, uh, I wish I had gotten in on it sooner before everybody knew it was a gag. I think that would have been a lot more fun. But, uh, yeah, Goncharov, check it out. Uh, nowhere. (laughs) It doesn't exist. 
Um, that's it for movies. That was a lot of movie talk, but let's get into comics because something big happened in comics, uh, or it's going to happen. This is future proofed comic book news. After a really, really nasty year for their parent company, DC has announced something potentially really exciting and certainly a smart marketing decision for their, for their funny book division, for the, for those comic books that their whole company is based on that they sometimes forget about that part. Uh, it's what I would call a soft relaunch of the DC comic book universe. It's not anything insanely world altering or hard resetting as say the new 52 or the rebirth event was, but it's still a good jumping on point for new readers. They are resetting a lot of books to, uh, issue number one. And it's an opportunity for the return of a lot of characters who have been, dormant in the DC stable over the last few years. Uh, the new event is going to be called Dawn of DC, uh, like Dawn of Justice, but Dawn of DC. And uh, just recently, DC has had one of their infamous crisis events just this last summer. Uh, back in August, it was called uh, Dark Crisis. Later, I think they expanded the title to be Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths. And, you know, it was Pretty boilerplate crossover event stuff. Darkseid harnessing a great power in order to decimate the entire multiverse. But it had some shocking things happen in it, particularly... Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for uh, for Dark Crisis. But uh, at one point, Pariah erases the entire Justice League from existence. All the heavy hitters, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, uh, everybody uh, get gets erased from existence and leaving, you know, leaving their side characters, their B squads, their, their later generations to kind of pick up the pieces in the rest of the story. That event, uh, dark crisis is leading into the first big shakeup for the DC universe in 2023. That's coming very soon, uh, called Lazarus planet. Uh, this is a big event that Mark Wade is the architect of. I love Mark Wade. He did my favorite run on Daredevil uh, only about 10 years ago, and maybe a little less than 10 years ago. But this concerns a Lazarus volcano, so made of the same mystical stuff that gives you the Lazarus pits in DC lore, like, uh, you know, Ra's al Ghul's Lazarus pits. And it's a volcano made of that that explodes in the final issue, uh, issue number four of Mark Wade's Batman vs. Robin miniseries that's uh, wrapping up like right now. And uh, that explosion unleashes a bunch of weird chemicals and particles and stuff into the air that transforms all the DC characters into some weird corrupted versions of themselves, which, you know, makes it makes for some crazy new dynamics and stuff. That event was announced back in October... And after that is, uh, happened, that's going to be for first quarter of 2023. After that, after both of these intense multiverse spanning crossovers that really change the shape and the tone of the DC universe, uh, Jim Lee, who's DC's chief creative officer these days, he's one of my favorite Batman artists. I love a Jim Lee drawn Batman. Oh, just the treads of his boots, Batman's boots are done better, never done better by anybody than Jim Lee. Uh, but anyway, uh, he announced this last week that the path forward in the aftermath of those events is the dawn of DC, in which the company's ongoing story uh, story plan is to 
this is their quote. Uh, they're going to move characters out of the shadows and into the light. Uh, okay. I think what that, what they mean by that is it sounds like, Hey, it's time for us to finish up these totally twisted plot lines where we upend everything and we get our heroes and villains back in their wheelhouses, back where they belong, but with fresh new material, fresh new voices, fresh new stories. But by putting people back where we're used to seeing them. Uh, so they plan to do it with a bunch of big marquee names in comics are going to be participating. And there's a bunch of new titles and stuff. Uh, just for the Superman lineup alone, you got three titles. You got Action Comics, which is uh, three new mini stories per issue to fit kind of this new tone. Uh, Superman number one is going to see Clark Kent settling back into his regular life on Earth, just in time for old enemies and nemeses to start disrupting him. And then, uh, we've discussed this book a couple weeks ago, Adventures of Superman, colon, John Kent, number one. Uh, that's going to have Clark's son, John Kent, who's become a very big name in DC Comics. He's going to take up the mantle of Superman proper, and he's going to take on Ultraman after being imprisoned by him in a previous storyline that just wrapped up. And then uh, Connor Kent, a.k.a. Superboy, is going to get his own series called Superboy, colon, The Man of Tomorrow. Uh, cool. That sounds great. That sounds like a lot of Superman, which that's interesting that DC is leading with Superman all of a sudden, because that's usually not the case. But it has been the last year or two. I realize that. Uh, another piece of news, Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart are both going to get their own Green Lantern titles, their own separate books that'll run concurrently with each other. That's so cool because those are two really great, very different characters. Both happen to be Green Lanterns. So I'm glad that they're taking both of them on at the same time. Uh, Green Arrow, he's got a real, like, we've got to clean this up kind of storyline happening after Dark Crisis. Oliver Queen's family is trying to find him because he was lost during that event. And uh, Mark Wade himself will be writing on a new Shazam series, which looks like it's going to be very lighthearted and fun, kind of dovetailing with the, the movies, how those have kind of given Shazam his own more kind of playful tone. I love that. I'm glad for that. Uh, and Cyborg is getting his own title that might be setting the stage for a lot of the uh, Dawn of DC ongoing crossover plot stuff, because he was a big, big factor in Dark Crisis uh, as a plot point. So that's cool. Uh, the Doom Patrol is back with their own title. Interesting. I love the Doom Patrol. Uh, at least I love the show. I never really got into the comics of the Doom Patrol, but I love that they're they're allowed to be weirdos. And uh, I'm all in favor of more weirdos in comic books. Uh, so, yeah. And this is one that I found very interesting. The Penguin is getting his own series. Which, I mean, that makes sense because they are gonna they were going to do that Penguin TV show on HBO Max. Yeah, David Zaslav may or may not have killed that TV show. I don't know. We haven't heard anything about it. But The Penguin's getting a comic book series. So I'm sure that might tie in in some way, shape, or form. So it sounds like there's a really big emphasis on doubling down on the kind of joy and depth 
of those Superman titles, and also bringing back characters who haven't had a lot of exposure in the books the last few years. When you think DC Comics these days, at least me, I think about that new book wall in the local comic book shop, and there's so much Harley Quinn stuff. So much Joker, so much Batman. There's some Wonder Woman. There's definitely, you know, of late, a lot of Superman. But, you know... I mean, there's one bat. There's one new Batman title coming with this uh, this event. Uh, Batman: The Brave and the Bold is getting its own series in the initial Dawn slate as well. But I like this idea of starting off with stuff like Cyborg, a character who always feels left behind in the greater DC landscape to me. Uh, Doom Patrol. The they're like the self-admitted also-rans of DC, right? And then Shazam, he's, he's got a new movie coming out, and his whole corner of the DC universe has always felt kind of underutilized in recent years, but now that Black Adam is, I guess, the linchpin of the movie meta-franchise, uh, they have to kind of emphasize Shazam and Black Adam a little bit more in the comics, so they're doing that. It seems like a great place to jump on board if you've been out of DC Comics for a while, uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. It sounds like a, uh, a step in the right direction. And the first of those titles is going to be launched at some point in February of 2023. So coming up pretty soon already. It's sneaking up on us. Uh, look out for that stuff. And so uh, that's leading us into TV news. And uh, the big thing that happened on the small screen this week was that Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special on Disney+. And I gotta say, I gotta say, these Marvel specials, as they're calling them, the special, the, the holiday specials that they're doing, they're two for two in my book. Uh, Werewolf by Night really captured a fun aesthetic and tone that the MCU has not shown off as of yet, really dipping their toes into that supernatural horror of their comic book history for the first time since the MCU became a thing. Sorry, Moon Knight, but this was the first time they really achieved it, in my opinion. And just in time for Halloween. It was really a lot of fun. I dug it. And now, using the MCU's most popular found family, James Gunn hits a purposefully cheeseball Christmas note, and it really rings true. I really liked it. Uh, without giving too much away what happens in it, I think the real triumph of this special, apart from it being a brisk 45 minutes long, which, joy to the world, oh, things can be short, I love it, I love when something is short like that, because it doesn't happen enough anymore, uh, apart from that, the biggest win is anchoring this special almost entirely on the shoulders of Dave Bautista and Palm Clementif, uh, it makes sense, it makes sense fiscally, I mean, I'm not sure which is more expensive at this point, the CGI tree giant and the talking raccoon, or just paying Chris Pratt's fee to appear. Both seem unusually expensive at this point, but all of them take a backseat to the character who hasn't really gotten her chance to shine since debuting, like, almost five years ago at this point, Mantis. Uh, yeah, she's kind of the star of this special, with Drax uh, along for the ride as kind of her literal partner in crime um they strike a great aliens coming down to earth and being baffled and delighted by us kind of thing uh it and and they they really make for a great uh buddy comedy scenario because she's just you know so normally demure and when 
when they get to Earth, she her personality gets bigger and it comes out a little bit. And Drax is just naturally big and out there. And, it, you know, it, it makes for a great escalation in funny uh, situational comedy stuff. And then you add Kevin Bacon as himself. Uh, Bacon is the MVP here, isn't it always? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Kevin Bacon is so game to flail around like a goofball in this special. He's he's so fun. Uh, he brings out some of his lesser-known talents, not just his great comedic performance, but also a musical performance. Not, I'm sorry, I'm probably giving too much away there, but... What can I say? It was a really fun 45 minutes. Uh, I, I enjoyed myself, and true to the genre and the format of a holiday special, it's all really warm and fuzzy in the right ways. It's it's even approaching tears in a spot or two. Uh, give it a spin if you haven't already. It's one of the better things we watched over the weekend in my house. Uh, I mean, granted, one of the one of the only things we watched in my... We, we've been watching a lot of other stuff, like... We watched the Blues Clues movie because I have a six-year-old, and uh, I like Blues Clues fine. That that put me to sleep. But I love the, the holiday special. It was really great, and I can't wait for more uh, holiday specials from, uh, from Marvel. Give me a Valentine's Day one. Who's in the Valentine's Day one? Hawkeye. Not Jeremy Renner, but, like, give me Kate Bishop, like going out on a bad date on Valentine's Day and then the mob attacks or something, right? I mean, heck, the Hawkeye show was a great holiday special in and of itself. It just happened to last a month. Uh, that was, that was I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Hawkeye another spin this holiday season, by the way. That was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'll tell you this for free. The Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special fared a lot better than, say, Netflix's Wednesday the Adams Family series centered on uh, Jenna Ortega's new Wednesday Adams, uh, and and it's all about Wednesday Adams going to boy get ready for this strap in folks she's going to a special prep school for creepy and kooky and spooky students just like her, uh, yeah, honestly you tell me you have Jenna Ortega as Wednesday you have Catherine Zeta Jones as Morticia. Luis Guzman as Gomez, and basically the plot and the aesthetic and the setting of this thing is just kind of a recycled Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. That's what I've been hearing about it. That's what it really feels like to a lot of people. Uh, that's a disappointment. I mean, it's Netflix, so I'm sure there'll be a second season of that coming no matter what, but that's kind of a... it sucks. Um, I can't wait to see Jenna Ortega in Scream 6, though. I'll say that much. I love her. She's really great in that. Uh... And I'm sure her Wednesday is great. I'm sure everybody's good in that show. I'm sure Christina Ricci is a lot of fun showing up as a different character interacting with Wednesday Adams. That's a lot of fun. But eh, for my money, I you know, I skipped that one and I just threw on Adams Family Values uh, over the Thanksgiving weekend anyway, because that's kind of a Thanksgiving movie. I've decided. Uh, yeah, I skipped that one. I've been skipping a lot of Netflix stuff lately, uh, sometimes to my detriment, but Anyway, the other streaming TV thing kicking up dust this last weekend, Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren in 1923. Yet another prequel series to the quietly biggest show on cable television, Yellowstone. Anybody watching Yellowstone? According to the demographics for this podcast, no, none of you likely 
are watching Yellowstone. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's how that's how demographics work. Um, yeah, I've seen all of Yellowstone up through season one through four because they're all on Peacock. My beloved Peacock can't go one week without saying Peacock. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, uh, Yellowstone, that show gets a bad rap on social media and on entertainment news sites, in my opinion. Like, because it gets this rap, it gets this reputation of being like basically right wing Sopranos goes west, essentially. Like, it's stupid people's succession. Uh, and that's not inaccurate. It's essentially a, you know, a labyrinthian crime drama about a family-owned ranch in Montana that butts up against the state government and the local reservation and tribal council and carpet-bagging land developers coming into big sky country from that dreaded festering cesspool we call California. Uh, (laughs) But in my opinion, Yellowstone is... It's just kind of really silly, fun, trashy soap opera material which happens to just be done very well by a couple of the actors on the show. In particular, I feel like Cole Hauser really knows what show he's on, and that's why his character is such a big Western archetype. Some of the other actors feel like they're on prestige, like, AMC cable drama, and that's not the right tone for the material that they're in, because that sh- this show is soap opera nonsense. Uh, especially once you're past the first season. But it's not a bad show, in my opinion. It is a real wanky-wank show for the libertarian ideal of telling the government to fuck right off your private property and exacting cowboy posse vengeance against those who have wronged you. And I really have to say, way too many people are brutally murdered on this show by men wearing badges that say Livestock Bureau, That's ridiculous. But (laughs) anyway, Tyler Sheridan, creator of the show, uh, which, like I said, it's very quietly one of the most watched television shows at the moment. Like everybody with a traditional cable package is watching this show. And and then it's getting streaming numbers as well. Uh, It's on Peacock, despite the fact that the show airs on the Paramount Network and you would think it would be on Paramount Plus. But they signed a contract before Paramount Plus was a thing, and it's on Peacock, which is so funny to me. It's like another unforced error. I think I know what the title of the episode this week is. Uh, anyway, uh, Tyler Sheridan teamed with Paramount to make a bunch of prequel series to Yellowstone, because everybody who likes Yellowstone wants more of it. Last year, it was 1883, a traditional Western that takes place within that universe and follows the Dutton family that is the stars of Yellowstone, uh, but back in the 1800s. And I tried to watch it. I'm a big Western guy. And I tried to, I'm trying to write a Western at the moment. So I love Westerns. And hey, this one had Sam Elliott in it. Uh, The production looked very big and bombastic and expensive. And it was, in my opinion, real bad it, it wasn't very good uh it was so bad that i didn't actually finish it i got down to maybe three or four episodes left and i just kind of said you know i got other stuff to watch i got a ton of stuff to watch and this really isn't worth my time because each episode is over an hour long and not much happens in them uh sam elliott's great in it i will say that 
but the words that I choose to describe 1883 would be meandering, plotting, unfocused, uh, uh, surface level. Uh, the phrase all sizzle, no steak comes to mind. It doesn't really have much coherent to say, but there's a ton of stuff that it's saying. A lot of voiceover narration from a central character who is, oof, not the best actor on the show and not the best written character on the show, but the show is anchored on her shoulders. And she gets voiceover narration with this flowery soliloquy every episode about how we belong to the land and the land is death and the flowers that bloom upon the death are the harbingers of our ruin, etc. and so forth. And ugh. anyway, I tell you all that to say there's a new, a new one, there's a new one, a new, uh, a new Yellowstone saga, a new Yellowstone origin story prequel series, and it's 1923, and it largely concerns the now-established Dutton Cattle Empire, dealing with Prohibition, uh, the aftermath after World War I, uh, the Great Depression, and that's a lot, that's a lot of material that certainly makes for, I would say, a better, uh, a better series story. 1883 might have worked better as just a standalone movie. This might be a better series. They've certainly upgraded cast-wise, because 1883, yes, it had Sam Elliott, but it also centered on James and Margaret Dutton. Those are the real kind of stars of the show, and those two were played by... <clears throat> uh, my wife's gonna be upset with me for saying this, but, uh... Country Western stars Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, who are not ready for prime time, folks. Let's just put it that way. They're not great actors, and way too much of that show was on their shoulders and the actress who played their daughter. Uh, this new series has Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. That's an upgrade, for certain. Uh, they're playing Jacob and Kara Dutton, and meanwhile, Timothy Dalton is in it as some kind of robber baron who's looking to buy up their whole valley and start a blood feud with them and cattle wars. And I don't know. It could be fun with with a cast like that. It might actually be real good. I'm not sure. The production value looks way bigger. Uh, shots of riverboats and what might be 1920s Helena or Bozeman, Montana. I'm not sure which one is the big city nearby. Uh, some flashbacks to the war, which look pretty epic. Uh, the big thing from the trailer to me is that Helen Mirren looks like she is throwing herself into this role pretty hard. She is not, uh, she's not resting on her laurels. Ford, meanwhile, eh, he looks, he looks fairly pleased to be paid to dress like a cowboy and ride a horse. We'll say that. His line deliveries sound kind of autopilot. But what can you do? It's Harrison Ford in 2022. That's just the way the man is now. He has a limited range anymore, so it seems. Uh, that's not a diss on Harrison Ford. It's just, look, the guy's in his 80s now. We can't expect him to have the kind of dynamic personality that he did when he was a young man. He's, he's not that man anymore. I think we can say confidently that he'll be better in this than he was in Cowboys vs. Aliens, for sure. I'm betting money on that right now. Uh, but yeah, I understand that Yellowstone is the flagship thing for Paramount to hang their television hat on right now. 
even if it's still very hilarious to me that Yellowstone is streamed on Peacock instead of Paramount Plus. I think that the the season that's airing right now, season five, is the last season on that contract before they can finally shift the show to Paramount Plus. But in the meantime, you know, outside of Star Trek, they really want that subscription to be synonymous with Tyler Sheridan's little Western cinematic universe. And as someone who watched all of it up until now, or almost all of it up until now, and I am a big fan of the genre, I love a Western... I just don't think that this man is a good enough storyteller to give him this amount of money and clout and creative freedom. And I don't think that his funny mashup of Dallas, Succession, and Bonanza has enough meat on its bones to launch a thousand ships like this. It's a really, really weird uh, thing to go all in on. But whatever. Harrison Ford's wearing a cowboy hat and riding a horse. Uh, Helen Mirren is doing a big Irish accent. Timothy Dalton's going to be a fancy pants villain wearing a top hat. Uh, Look, it all makes sense on paper. I'm talking about it right now, aren't I? So, hey, they got me in one in one aspect already, right? Uh, But hey, that's all I'm talking about for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in as always and hanging out as always. I want to give a special happy birthday to my best buddy, Chris Pranger, whose birthday is November 29th. Give him a birthday message on Twitter or over on, <laughs> hey, over on Hive, Hive Social. Uh, in both, he is at the Chris Pranger. So give him a shout, give him a happy birthday. And while you're there, drop me a line or two on, uh, uh, or a news tip at media underscore sandwich on Twitter or just plain at media sandwich on Hive. If you're getting into that app, uh, you can also write the show at media sandwich shoe at gmail.com, or you can follow me along on Tumblr and start, uh, shifting through that Goncharov stuff. <laughs> if that sounds like your your bag baby. Uh, and Hey, if you want to know a cheap way to send me some holiday cheer, it's actually a totally free way of sending me a great gift. Uh, subscribe to the show rate the show on your podcast app, write a little review of the show. It would really brighten my holiday spirit. It could be something as short as good show, bad voice, dumb takes, two word review. You, I just gave you three different things that you could write and I'd be happy to get any one of them. Uh, whatever you want to put, but Hey, until we meet again next week, I am, and I shall remain Kyle Martinak. I'm going to go have a sandwich.